You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. Alongside me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's juror number four, Ben Folks. Uh, ben, it's Tuesday. It's, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. We're recording the podcast a, a day late. Uh, we've both got our coffees out here. Uh, there's some kind of city leaf removal team outside my house. I saw those guys, yeah. Using enormous, uh, like, earth-moving machines, it looks like. So if there's a low rumble in the background of this CME podcast, even worse than there normally is, that's why. Uh, why don't you tell us what you've been up to? We, it's, a, it's a day late. Uh, you got tabbed to fulfill your civic duty, from what I understand. Yeah, I can't really talk about it because the trial is still ongoing, but I am a juror on a trial here in Missoula, uh, and it looks like it's going to go a few days. So we got today off because of Election Day, which I didn't know anybody got to take the entire day off, but apparently now at the courthouse, that's what they do, which, you know, I'll take it. Um, but yeah, we're back at it tomorrow, and I can't can't say anything about what's going on down there. But when it's all over, I'll 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 tell everybody as much as they want to hear about it. How is uh, MMA Junkie doing with this? Are they are they cool with it? Is is it about to go under? Uh, is it is the the boat? Is there a huge whirlpool that the boat is circling without you? That it's about to get sucked underneath the. You know, it's the, weird. By the tides. Every time I check in with them, uh, it always seems like they're. They're trying to hide the fact that they've been having a big, huge party ever since I've been gone. Uh, and it just sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm talking to them on the phone. I hear in the background, like, champagne flutes clicking together and uh, the the high-pitched laughter of frivolity. And I'm like, what's going on? You guys didn't, like, have a party or anything while I was gone, did you? Like, no, no, that's just that's it's the neighbors. So I, I'm suspicious. Now, I know that you can't tell us anything about it, so just in a real general sense, tell us the name of the person who's on trial, <laughs> what they're on trial for, and how you plan to vote when you go back into the jury room. Um, your mother, uh, regicide and guilty. <laughs> uh, the, my mother, the Kingslayer. Yes. All right, three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one... Did you see those pictures of Luke Rockhold and Michael Bisping in front of the Sydney Opera House this week, just looking like a couple of surly teenage stepbrothers on vacation with their parents? This ought to be a pretty good fight. And in round number two, late opponent switcheroo for Mauricio Shogun Hua, UFC Fight Night 56. He's got Ovin St. Peru now, so I guess what we're saying is, man, Shogun better damn well win this one. And in round number three... Not to get ahead of ourselves, but did you guys know that there are three pretty interesting fight cards happening next Saturday on November 15th? Not going to lie to you. We had to make some tough choices mm -hmm. today about what to cover. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Peter Wald. Or I guess if we were going to use the German pronunciation, Peter Wald. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it, yes. Ich heiße Peter Walt. Ich habe das Co-Main-Event-Podcast sehr gern. Ich bin ein Staubsauger. Man, high school German just paying off. 
I just said, my name is Peter Walt. I like the co-main event podcast very much. I am a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> nice. Peter Wald writes, here in San Francisco this past week, everyone has been talking about the WSOB, World Series of Baseball. It got me thinking, much like Bellator had the whole tournament shtick, wouldn't it be helpful for World Series of Fighting to adopt some sort of gimmick to help differentiate itself from other mid-tier promotions? Why not steal the whole best of seven deal from baseball? Hear me out. Do it for title fights only and chop it down to three five-minute rounds per fight. Since seven fights would be a little extreme, let's just call it best of five. Shit, most title fights already have an immediate rematch implicitly baked in if the champ has a long tenure and the challenger wins. Uh, this way, World Series of Fighting could get a minimum of three headlining shows out of each matchup, which would give them a little more mileage out of the few big names they have. Personally, I don't know about five five-minute rounds of Fitch versus Shields, but I'm pretty intrigued by what would happen if they fought three to five times in three in a three-round fights all in the span of a couple months. What do you guys think? Well, this, this seems like the worst idea. Other than it being totally batshit insane, I kind of like it. I, I have It has occurred to me in the past that World Series of Fighting seems like a weird name for that organization because in no way is it really a series like in any recognizable form other than that there's more than one like event. Okay, yeah. No, I will give you that, that that (laughs) the best thing that this idea has going for it is the sheer uh, literacy, literally, of it all to make the name World Series of Fighting actually make sense. But there's so many ways that this could go bad. Oh, yeah. That would be terrible. I mean, this wouldn't probably happen in, in Fitch versus Shields, but let's pretend like... You're in a best of five series and one dude just gets brutally knocked out twice in a row by the other guy. And then you're like, come back well, on Tuesday. Yeah, I guess we're going to do this again, brother, in a, in a couple of months or however long it takes this guy to now get back from his double knockout uh, athletic commission suspension. I mean, I mean, some some of them might turn out to be off. Awesome. I mean, you might have a barn burner five fight series between uh, a couple of guys, but and then when, their careers would be over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there would just be so many ways for this to go wrong. Not to mention, like I'm pretty sure in the mixed martial arts industry, what people like the most is a rematch, right? <laughs> so people would be pretty excited about Fitch versus Shields five. Yeah. When that when that came down, you yeah. know what I one thing I do like about it though is, and I think Alistair Overeem was the latest person to to fall prey to this is. The dude's saying, like, when they lose a fight to somebody that they were favored over, saying, I beat that guy nine times out of ten. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, I beat that guy. Yeah? Well, best of five, asshole. Go out there and prove it. (laughs) I mean, other than it being completely, like, unrealistic and uh, a cultural and athletic disaster, probably, for everyone involved, other than that, I like it. In that same vein, I just saw a headline on MMA Fighting this morning when I was casting around trying to figure out stuff for us to talk about. Uh, Dustin Poirier saying, I'm pretty sure I could still beat Conor McGregor, uh, which is maybe the the beauty of having a five-fight series since every fighter in the world, when they lose a fight, does this thing where they like immediately minimize it, both in their own minds and to others if they can, by saying, well, he was the better man tonight well, on this night. And then, you know, like they a, week, a week later, they're like, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I could still beat Conor McGregor. Uh, it'd be harder, I think, to pull that off both mentally and publicly if you had if you'd gone 0 and 3. No, they'd just be like, if it was best of seven, man, I'm telling you, <laughs> I would have <laughs> do it best of nine straight. like they used to do the World Series back <laughs> in the like early 1900s. 
The next uh, piece of mail this week comes to us from Sean Minogue. He writes, I'm assuming that you two rarely have the time to go over what your writing staff of college interns puts out in the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. Brother, ain't that the truth? So I'll fill you in. There was a reference to some comments from Andy Foster, the executive director of the California State Athletic Commission, in which he sounds pretty interesting, interested in doing some day, same-day weigh-ins. My gut tells me that this would be awesome for the health of the fighters, but my gut doesn't have a brain or even a mouth. So I'm hoping you two can come up with a much more reasoned argument for why same-day weigh-ins wouldn't totally annihilate the sport as it is today. Now, I see, I think Sean Minogue here tapped into a secret uh, method to get your, co-main, your, your email read on the co-main event podcast, and that's to send in an email on a topic that you wrote about this week, because we're always going to do that, right? Didn't you well, write something about same-day weigh-ins? I did a, I did a video uh, oh right, one the, of my, the speed bag. One of my speed bag videos in response to that, uh, and we did. Can write you tell about by it. my face that I'm sitting over here just trying not to make fun of that that name? Just a better name. Let's hear it. The ball bag. <laughs> just call it the nutsack. Just come out and call it the nutsack. I I really don't know how this got about testicles. So now quickly. is it is it called the speed, speed bag, bag like because a, you do a shitload of crank before you get started with the video? Are or? you aware? Of, have you ever been in a boxing gym, Chad? Are I'm not even sure the, what that. I'm not even sure what that is. Is that like Irish hurling? You know what? Let's move on. Uh, are you talking about Boxing Day in Canada? God damn it! How did I end up here? <laughs> how did my life become this? Uh, okay. The the stuff about the same day weigh ins. I appreciate you know the the California State Athletic Commission trying to think of something to do about weigh ins. It seems like the whole one seventy seven UFC one seventy seven thing in Sacramento, where Henan Barrow and Henry Cejudo both got knocked out of their fights, really left kind of a, a scar for Andy Foster, and they're trying to do something about it. And I mean, I do once we kind of take a step back, I think we get a little too used to the extreme craziness of huge weight cuts sure just because you know we've seen it so much but yeah i mean not only is it probably not super healthy to have dudes dehydrating themselves and sucking moisture out of their brains right before they go get punched in the head but we're probably also not seeing the best performances um but it would cause a pretty huge change across the sport and it would have to be more than just california doing it i mean i don't think same day weigh-ins necessarily is by itself the answer because as we've seen Fighters are so desperate to get any sort of edge. Right. If you just, you know, if you're like, okay, you're, they're gaming the system here. Let's add another way in. They'll just game that system, and probably it'll be more dangerous to right. game the same day way ins You'd probably have to do, you know, I've heard people suggest week before weigh-ins or trying to establish for each fighter, like, here's the the lowest point you can fight at. We won't we won't license you for anything under that. I think they do that with a lot of high school wrestling now, don't they? Uh, my experience as an assistant high school wrestling coach tells me yes. <laughs> but you're mostly a motivation guy. You yeah, don't really handle no. the details. I'm right? an idea guy. Uh, I go out there and, and fire everybody up. Um, I'm like that guy in uh, Foxcatcher. I don't know. I a lot like that guy. Oh, no, no one's seen it. It's not out yet. Okay. It's a joke because Steve Carell plays that crazy DuPont guy who goes on a shooting rampage, right? Well, this is all news to me, but I'm looking forward to seeing it when it really? gets in the red box. You don't remember when that happened when we were kids? That that crazy no. member of the DuPont family was like super into wrestling? Well, now I'm doing tons of spoilers about the movie, but it's a true story, so I assume they don't count. Yeah, a crazy member of the DuPont family becomes like a weird hanger-on slash financial backer slash coach of Olympic wrestlers, and uh, he ends up going on – I think that they train like on his land at, at, by his house, and something happens where he goes on like a shooting rampage and kills a bunch of them. How did Channing Tatum get involved? Uh, he actually saved the wrestlers who, uh, who ended up living. Okay. No, that's not true. And then uh, they all became strippers? He plays one of the wrestlers in the film. 
I, I, ben, I, I know that. I feel know like that you much. went to jury duty and lost your damn mind. <laughs> you know what? Must be being around eleven of movies. Being around eleven of your peers has, has sapped your intelligence. Oh. I think. You know, I agree with you about same day weigh-ins. The uh, weigh-in, the weigh-in process in mixed martial arts now. Uh, does appear to be broken, I think, if we would, were going to take a real uh, objective look at it and not like a, an insular uh, look f- as a couple of guys who are around the sport all the time and are there, therefore used to it. And so same-day weigh-ins, which I think I think Sean's is right that that, that would perhaps – you know, alter the sport as we know it moving forward, but maybe in a good way, uh, if you could figure out something to do with how to change the way weigh-ins are structured today. But I also agree with you that I don't think same-day weigh-ins are really the answer. Uh, and every time I've ever heard an actual fighter talk about it, they just say that fighters are just essentially going to cut weight twice or like prolong the weight cutting uh, uh, process and then really quickly rehydrate before the fight. Which so, would be way more dangerous. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it, it, that it, that particular idea ultimately, you know, could become a lot more dangerous. Um, but I don't think we should just slam the door on like ideas to help the the weight cutting issue. I mean, I think that- no, for heavens no. I would love to see someone come up with a with a sweet idea of how to, uh, you know, make make the sport safer by either changing the weight cutting process or abolishing it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, it's going to be this sport is kind of resistant to change, and it, this would be a pretty huge goddamn change. But you know, I, I'd love to hear some more ideas. Yeah, see, that's the thing too. Like, you would it would have to be uh, a comprehensive change, right? Yes. It would have to be in in, in all, all of the states, really, at least the states that had legitimate and and uh, um, you know uh, influential athletic commissions, and uh, you would have to do it. You would think in the face of fierce opposition from the promoters and probably some of the fighters too uh which you know makes you wonder if if any athletic commission let alone like a a a congress of several of them would have the clout to do that the clout or the wherewithal i think the you know if we've learned anything from nevada state athletic commission meetings being on the fight pass uh so they don't always seem like the most together and or uh free thinking body at times or Maybe uh, they're they're sometimes it seems like they're just putting on a show. Yes, it does seem like that. And if you're going to ask me uh, what body is capable of forcing a huge change that would change the sport and that many of the powerful people in the sport would be against, I'm not going to look at that panel of people and say them. Those are the people with the juice to make it make it happen. Nope. The government just regulated by the government. Uh, the next message this week comes to us from Mike Morgan. Mike Morgan is on a nice little run here. I feel like. He's maybe been on two or three of our shows recently. Go on, Mike Morgan. He writes, can you guys please take a few minutes to talk about the flyweight division? We'd love to. John Lineker and Ian McCall face off from Uberlandia, Brazil this Saturday. Not a real place. Yeah, absolutely not. And I was wondering who you guys thought would make a more interesting title challenger against Demetrius Johnson. Looking at McCall's record, I was surprised to see that he's 2-4-1 and one in his last seven fights. Lineker, on the other hand, is 5-1 and one in his last six fights. However, Lineker has fought much weaker competition and was soundly defeated by Ollie Bags, who just lost the DJ. I love watching the flyweights, but with Dodson on the shelf and Benavidez in limbo, is DJ doomed to make another title offense that no one cares about? Uh, well, I think the obvious choice for the more interesting flyweight challenger here is, is John Lineker. Uh, you know, not, not the least of which because we've seen McCall do it before. Yeah. Uh, we got kind of close once. Yeah. He, he, and, and he may be the, the best challenger for Demetrius Johnson, but I think, you know, Lineker not only brings, 
uh, a fresh face to the to the scenario here, but he also has a style of fighting that I think uh, would be easier for the UFC and the UFC's PR department to kind of make into a thing, right? Because yes. he's a knockout artist. Right. And the, at least we're led to believe that the fans of this sport like to see the knockouts and that, you know, when we're just spitballing ideas of why the flyweight division hasn't been more popular, you know, oftentimes people bring up Demetrius Johnson's fighting style, which a lot of times is is super effective and, and I think fun to watch, but at the same time sometimes feels like it's made to grind out close or very lopsided decisions and uh, not necessarily uh, set up for a lot of stoppages. Lineker is the exact opposite. He's going to come out there and throw hillbilly haymakers at your face until one of you goes to sleep. Uh, and, and, you know, th- that seems like the style of fighting that, that the company likes to promote. And I guess we're led to believe the style of fighting that people like to watch. It does offer like a good selling point in that, you know, the promise of power is one of the last like few just like pure attractions that you can tell people like, okay, this one guy, you know, you can just already imagine the promo of Joe Rogan uh, really close to the camera in like a darkened basement somewhere shouting about how John Lineker uh, just has to put his hand on your chin once and you're going to sleep. Uh, and then a bunch of highlights and people shouting, whoa, and that one blonde lady doing the Arsenio Hall thing. Cut. Uh, we got it. But I also think when it comes to the idea of like, hey, is it going to be another title defense that no one cares about? You kind of look at the stuff Ian McCall has been saying in the media, and you're like, if somebody can go out there and sell a fight against Demetrius Johnson, it's probably him. I mean, we have seen it before and everything, but he seems willing to to go out there and kind of hype it up yeah. in interviews and stuff like that. And there's something to be said for that. Sure. Uh, but then as far as the fight itself, yeah, we could very easily find a situation where as soon as it starts, we're like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's right. We saw this. I remember now. I saw this movie already. I know how it ends. Yeah, McCall came out and said nobody cares about the flyweight division. Publicly because said that of because Demetrius of Demetrius Johnson, Johnson which uh, kind of an ingenious way to go about it, I guess. It's certainly a bold statement and not the kind of thing that you would expect another flyweight to say, considering uh, well, what he's would you lost to, to Demetrius Johnson and uh, he's sort of damning his own division a little bit there. Well, what was, is he going to say no one cares about the flyweight division because we're all tiny and suck? Like, no, he's not going to say that. It's easier to blame it on one guy, and especially a guy who has some, some wins over him. Uh, in in that same vein, though, you just like you said, we've already seen that movie before. Uh, what do you think is the is the flip side there for Ian McCall? Like, is he trying to say that that Ian McCall style and his whiskers and tattoos and and uh, you know, want. I'm just going to assume vest with no shirt underneath it would okay. would, would make it more safe. or maybe suspenders with no shirt underneath. Yeah, it. there there you go. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go John Lineker here. I would like to see him fight Demetrius Johnson, but only because I'm kind of a sucker for new stuff. Yeah, you are. We know that about you. Uh, the next message comes from Rob L. He writes, I was perusing Ben's favorite new internet hang Reddit today and came across this interesting article on the MMA forum. And then there's a link to an article from lastwordonsports.com uh, that essentially makes the case for Team Alpha Male having found the solution to avoiding injuries, essentially because they train year-round and always stay close to their fighting weight. They eliminate the dangers of intensive camps and weight cuts, causing them to pull out of fights. The numbers in the article make a great case for outlining the blueprint and maintaining healthy fighters and men minimizing cancellations. I have three questions relating to the topic, however. Does the fact that 
alpha male is made up of mostly lighter weight classes uh, have anything or have any impact on this statistic? Number two is the idea that being a wrestling based team who ideally know how to train with one another without causing injuries. They have essentially selected the right group of fighters to train together, something to consider. Or three, what if anything can the UFC do to influence other fighters and trainers to follow in alpha male's footsteps? Now, do you have the the, the article? The I did. Up? I actually saw this before we saw this question because it is my new favorite internet hangout. Because uh, the numbers in the article actually are interesting. They are, yeah. Uh, and so why don't you read those and then I'll, I'll say what I wish the article would have had that it didn't. Yeah, okay. That, that is kind of the key. Yeah, uh, basically it lays out a couple of bullet points here saying uh, between the seven current UFC fighters on Team Alpha Male, 65 matchups had been officially announced by the UFC and fought uh, containing them since the WEC merger. Of those 65 matchups, only twice has a Team Alpha Male fighter been removed from a fight due to an injury, uh, which they say is a 3% injury rate. Um, Team Alpha Male has seen 10 opponents removed from fights due to injury, which is a 15% injury rate. Team Alpha Male has been a late replacement for a fight four times, meaning they saved more fights than they have been removed from. Uh, Team Alpha Male members fight on average once every 138 days, four and a half months, uh, while current champions, excluding Team Alpha Male's TJ Dillashaw, fight every 169 days, which is five and a half months. Uh, And then the big one, in 2013, the UFC put on 386 fights with 101 injuries, changing or canceling fights, while Team Alpha Male were involved in 19 of those fights with zero injuries, changing or canceling fights. So yeah, that's a lot of injuries, for sure. It still seems like a small sample size uh, to draw too many big points, and I am... I would be interested to know if the general injury rate is lower for the lighter weight classes since Team Alpha Male pretty much only has light, lighter right. weight classes. I mean, if you told me light heavyweights and heavyweights get injured at a higher rate, I would believe that. Yeah. Uh, so that might have something to do with it. Um, I would be interested to hear some of the Team Alpha Male guys say what they think they're right. doing uh, to like See, if they I, agree with this. I think that you just hit the nail on the head right there. I'm down with all of these numbers, and I feel like that this is interesting and compelling, and it certainly does make it appear that Team Alpha Male uh, is doing something right to eliminate injuries and not have their guys have to drop out of fights. Uh, and, you know, it could well be that it is because they do train year-round and keep, stay in shape and all that stuff. Uh, but that is a pretty big assumption. Right. That, uh, and they're not the only ones who do that. Right. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would wager... Almost every camp would at least tell you that they do that if, right. if, you, if you called them. Uh, but the thing that I would really like to see in this article or from some other in, intrepid uh, researcher would be to actually call Team Alpha Male or go there better. Uh, you, you know, that would be even better. Uh, and and ask the guys who train there what they're doing to uh, to make that difference. Because it could be that, that this method of staying in shape and, and all that stuff uh, is what does it. And it could be totally something else that they do. So it would be interesting to hear from those guys. And it would be interesting to hear if they know that, like if, if they, right. they know of these numbers and know that what they're doing helps not pull out of fights or if it would even be news to them as well. Yeah. And I mean, I think that a lot of it too is uh, maybe we don't always understand the nature of training injuries as well as we do that you know sometimes i think it's going to be due to overtraining or doing the wrong things or something like that but sometimes man i mean i think it's just bad luck uh that that just happens sometimes and i also think that uh you you might want to take into account things like age like maybe team alpha male i mean uriah favor seems like he's probably one of the oldest members of team alpha male right like that older fighters probably get hurt at a higher rate stuff like that um, but yeah, I mean, they, they might have some kind of 
information that they could share. And as for the question of what, if anything, the UFC can do to influence other fighters and trainers to follow an alpha male's footsteps, and I would think losing out on a paycheck when you have to pull out injured, that should be enough motivation for you. Uh, that if you do find out, hey, these guys, it doesn't happen to them, uh, it would be in your best interest to go find out why. Because it's you who is being hurt when you can't show up to fight and can't get paid. Yeah. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And uh, that that number of the 101 cancellations out of what, 300 and some fights, uh, even though that is sort of a, a small sample size, that's kind of a staggering number, man. That That's that's a lot. And so like we talked about before, this does seem like a, a big problem, a big problem that, that isn't getting any better since clearly uh, – these injury woes that we're currently mired in. I think you could make the argument stretch all the way back to 2012. Uh, and so it, it does seem that a larger conversation about training methods and what's happening and why all these injuries are happening is warranted. And uh, it'd be one that I would be super interested to find out the answer to, frankly. Yeah. 101 injuries and 386 fights. That is kind of amazing. Yeah. So almost 400 fights. Uh, but still, that's a lot. Yeah. That's like almost 25%. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern you want to air to the, to Das Co-Main Event podcast in the future, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday. Uh, you can enjoy that with your cornflakes or your steel cut oatmeal mm -hmm. everyone eats that steel cut oatmeal yeah i don't even know what that means really no you don't you don't know anything uh also it's more than 25 percent. i was wrong there yeah because yeah. it's not quite 400 right. fights so it's actually almost uh 30 right if it was three yeah okay we're on the same page yeah i hear what you're saying it's good some steel cut oatmeal yeah um the co-main event podcast breakfast of champions newsletter comes out every friday morning it catches you up on the news and notes that we miss from monday to monday when we record the podcast or, or tuesday monday to tuesday as and it's, it is it's just a it good time right too just fun. As fun for, for right, the whole family. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, uh, I would allege in any case that Michael Bisping and Luke Rockhold are laying it on a little thick in uh, the week or two leading up to this uh, main event fight of theirs from Sydney, Australia, which will air on the fightpass.com uh, over here in America on Friday night. Uh, but uh, I, I talked in the opening about them posing in front of the Sydney Opera House, looking like their parents made them go stand out in front of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> They've been fighting on the car ride all, all the way down. We just uh, want a nice picture. Rockhold posted later, I posted a picture of Bisping on his Twitter that he said was a picture of Michael Bisping bitching out the cameraman uh, for doing something wrong during the photo shoot. I feel like we had a conversation similar to this prior to the Kung Lee fight, but I just want to ask you, uh, does Michael Bisping having a feud with Luke Rockhold do anything for you in advance to this fight because it doesn't really do a lot for me at this point. It does a little something for me. I mean, I think it's an interesting fight just matchup-wise uh, to begin with. Yeah, I'm so, talking about beyond the physical. 
I know you want to watch these two guys strip to the waist and go out there and do the damn thing inside a steel cage, but yeah, because I'm an I'm an adult. That's I'm, a reasonable thing. For I'm me to asking because we talked about this before the Kung Lee fight, but Bisping does this every time, and yes. this is his 22nd fight in the UFC. He's been doing it since what 2000 and. Uh, 2006, 2000, and yeah, June 2006 was his debut. Uh, and I find that maybe just the repetition of having him have all of these feuds with every single opponent that he has, and also the fact that his star is starting to fade a little bit now, uh, that this will be his second straight uh, fight on the fight pass. Um, it, it just kind of has gotten old for me. It's like I know that Bisping is going to do this against every single opponent, and to me, that makes me feel like we're kind of gullible to fall for it every single time. Well, I don't think it's fake. I don't think there's anything that we're falling for. I think what the way that it's changed for me over time because it has happened so often is now I am less inclined to see it as a statement about Michael Bisping's relationship to Fighter X uh, and more as a statement about Michael Bisping's personality. Like I think we we've, we've gotten to the point where we have to say, Look at who's the common denominator in all these feuds. And even when I talked to him about him and about that, and I asked him, and he he admitted like kind of jokingly, but he was like, "One does start to question oneself. Uh, it makes me wonder if I am truly an asshole." Uh, then he laughed like uproariously that he found that idea very funny. Uh, so yeah, I don't think he really cares that much. But I mean, I like if I felt like it was just. Uh, contrived and they were just doing it because all right we got to get people to watch the fight pass man let's pretend to hate each other like i believe that these two dudes really don't like each other and i believe that that adds a little extra juice to the whole fight like you just feel like man you really don't like danny downs was saying you really don't want to lose to a guy who you hate you know you never want to lose but like especially in in that kind of situation where you don't want to have that guy have bragging rights over you i feel like that extra element of it is one of the great things about fight sports where you know it's like when you see him get mad in race car driving and it's like oh man they fought afterwards can you fucking believe it yeah well that's what they do is as the sport in this one so when when they get so mad that they would fight even if they were doing something else even if they were playing tennis then yeah i think it adds a little something to it Uh, yeah i'm not trying to allege that it is phony really because i agree with you that i (laughs) you're a phony baloney sitting over there with your phony baloney gas station coffee uh I, I do. I agree with you. I believe that this is the natural byproduct of a Michael Bisping fight and that this is his personality and that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, he brings this part of himself out and that it, it grates on his opponents. Because, frankly, it seemed like Luke Rockhold kind of tried to play it cool leading up to this one and then eventually was just like, all right, fuck it. You know, if this is how he's going to act, I'll, I'll, I'll entertain him in, in, in his desire for us to have this feud. You know, uh, one of the things he said that seemed like, like his friends were kind of making fun of him, like Bisping he said, or Rockhold? Uh, Rockhold was saying that, like, you know, if he goes out there on some media call and Bisping does all the talking and he doesn't really, if he tries to play it cool, then Cormier and all the, uh, the AKA dudes will make fun of him afterwards. And so then he said that, you know, that, ups the pressure a little bit to win some of these arguments before the fight. His buddies in the Dawn Patrol when they're all out there on their surfboards <laughs> yeah. in the in the morning surf. Yeah. Getting ready to catch that first wave. Yeah. You've seen Point Break. You know how it goes. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about the uh, – I still think it's tiresome that Bisping does this every time. But anyway, uh, let's talk about the, the actual fight. Uh, this seems like kind of a big one for Michael Bisping. Uh, you know, he's coming off that win over Kung Lee. But uh, the last several years now, he doesn't have a ton of wins that I would describe as uh, particularly 
I guess, awesome and or relevant. Mm -hmm. You just go over the list of wins for Bisping the last few years in the UFC. He beat Kung Lee back in August. Before that, he beat Alan Belcher via technical decision, uh, which I believe resulted because Bisping poked Belcher in the eye. Yes, but he was winning pretty soundly on the scorecards and then poked him in the eye right there near the end. And you're just like, man, you were so close to just having a clean win there. Which goes to show you, man, if you're ahead on the scorecards and you want to call things off prematurely, it's cheap. Just cheap. Pokemon cheat your ass off. Uh, before that, he beat Brian Stan, which is might be his best win on this list. Uh, and, but prior to that, Jason Mayhem Miller. We all remember how that one turned out. Jorge Rivera, Yoshihiro Akiyama, and then Dan Miller. That's taken it all the way back to May of 2010. Like, if Michael Bisming comes out there and somehow gets this win over Luke Rockhold, this would be his most impressive win in a long time, right? Yeah. Yeah, it would be. And, I mean, like you said, though, I think this is more about – winning to keep something bad from happening than to make something good i mean i don't think he's going to get a title shot with a win here probably have to uh fight one more time like i was when somebody was asking me about it i think in last week's twitter mailbag it seemed like you know hey the winner of this against your guy the soldier of god uh that doesn't sound like such a bad idea you you well, romero like a bad idea for uh for michael bisping if it turns out to be him i would think <laughs> but uh, maybe that's just me you know but i think that this could be like kind of a contender eliminator and for bisping at like what 35 years old it might be the last contender eliminator because he's kind of gotten close a few too many times to to keep repeating that pattern indefinitely yeah i think that this this could be it and i think that adds a little extra something to the matchup too i also think though on paper this seems like a really tough matchup for Michael Bisping, man. I yeah, super tough, I think. And a big win for him also uh, because, you know, he's, like you said, 35 years old. And right now he's hanging around uh, what I would describe as the outskirts of the middleweight top 10. Uh, you know, doing right, the fight pass circuit. Right, yeah, he's doing on the fightpass.com. Uh, right now he's surrounded by dudes like Musasi, C.B. Dalloway, Talis Leites, and Costa Filippu. Uh, it would be way better, I think, to move up into a more desirable neighborhood by beating Luke Rockhold, and suddenly you're surrounded by, uh, you know, the Vitor Belfort, Leoto Machida, Yoel Romero's of the world. Uh, that's that's more rarefied company to be in, certainly if you're Bisming, and you get the impression that that uh, just due to his age, maybe he's running out of chances to get there. Uh, yeah. He's always been kind of denied that top con contender status just because of of a few. Uh, poorly placed losses, I guess, inopportune losses. Um, but I agree with you. Uh, Luke Rockhold right now seems enormous and capable and athletic and kind of kind of scary in a way that I would not consider Michael Bisping to be scary. Yeah. Well, and I guess that would make it a bigger win for him if he managed to pull it off because he's like a you know four to one underdog in this, something like that. I mean, uh, the odds pretty heavily favor Rockhold here. So if you are Michael Bisping and you go out there and you find a way to beat this guy, which I don't know, I have a hard time exactly envisioning how that happens yeah uh, he, you know what he kind of overachieves in a lot of fights though like I, I keep thinking back to that Chael Sonnen fight where he didn't win but everybody kind of expected him to get you know to to get his clock cleaned and, and he ended up making it close I wonder if he's the kind of guy that either fights up or down to his competition in a way well I, I mean I I think that he that people think he's worse than he is as a fighter just because they don't like his personality I mean I think he is a good fighter uh, but I think that one of the things that people were surprised with in the Chael Sonnen fight was that his wrestling, his you know, his wrestling turns out to be better than you'd think it would be, just because we have this stereotype for one thing about British dudes that they can't wrestle, that kind of thing. Uh, and then he goes out there against Chael Sonnen, and he's actually like you know getting takedowns and stuff. But I don't think that that 
that those attributes help him in this matchup so much because I think when you're fighting a guy, a bigger guy who can kind of be the rangy striker against you, if you're Michael Bisping, that's kind of a nightmare. You, if you're Bisping, you like to be the guy standing on the outside and making the other guy come in after you. Uh, you don't like to be the guy trying to find the way in there uh, and getting your your ribs kicked. I think that you know on paper. This looks like Luke Rockhold's fight. I mean, I guess the question then is, what does it mean for Luke Rockhold to go out there and beat a 35-year-old Michael Bisping on the fight pass right now? Yeah, I mean, I think you could make the argument it would also be Rockhold's biggest win, uh, certainly of his UFC career, I guess, and and maybe uh, since he beat Jacare back in uh, 2011. Um because he's looked super good against Tim Boach and Costa Filippo in his last couple of wins, managed to put some distance between himself and what was probably Vitor Belfort's most TRTEist knockout of his three head kick knockout run during 2013. Primo young dinosaur there. Yeah. Uh, uh, but we, we have yet to really see him strike against somebody. Uh, you would consider among the upper echelon of middleweights. I don't know that Michael Bisping totally fits that mold, but he's been a guy who's been around for a super long time and has been the kind of guy who, uh, you know, maybe you could make the case that the road to the to the middleweight title fight runs through Bisping. Like, uh, if you're going to fight for the title, you got to be better than Bisping. Yeah. You could, you could definitely make that argument. I mean, I think that a win over him still means a little something for you, uh, especially if you're Luke Rockhold and it becomes your third straight win in the middleweight division. And then I think, you know, you put Rockhold and uh, UL Romero in a number one contender fight, that'd be fun. Yeah. I'm and you couldn't to, argue with whoever comes out of that. I'm starting to feel excited about that, just having heard you mention it. Because, you know, there's not really a long way for Luke, for Luke Rockhold to go up. You know, he's behind Anderson Silva, Jacare, Vitor Belfort, and Leota Machida right now. He's sitting right there at number five. Uh, obviously, we don't, we have no idea what's going to happen with the future of Anderson Silva's career. Uh, Belfort's about to get his chance for whatever reason. Uh, and Leota Machida has already lost to Chris Weidman. So, yeah, you're right. I think, uh, if Luke Rockhold does something impressive against Michael Bisping, especially, but even if he just gets the win, you could see him against somebody like Yoel Romero and what would probably turn out to be a title eliminator. Um, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we'll move on to, to round number two. What's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, I'm sure you saw it because it's on all of the websites and the social medias and whatnot, but Anderson Silva was hospitalized on Monday with some kind of back what? issues. Oh my God, is he okay? Yeah. You know, first it's the leg stuff, and when he comes back from that, we got to see videos of him walking downstairs and kicking yoga balls and carrying Gatorades and just constant updates on the state of the man's leg and what he's able to do with it. Now, now we're supposed to care about the 39-year-old man's back, huh? Yep. Are you fucking kidding me? Are we just gradually becoming personal injury lawyers here <laughs> in MMA? We got to start to think about a man's back pain, all this stuff. I can't take it anymore, Chad. I can't just wake me up when it's fight time for Anderson Silva and Nick Diaz. Until then, leave me alone. I don't want to hear about any of this shit. You fucking kidding me? Not me, man. When can I get an update? When can I get an Instagram video filmed by somebody at Black House of Anderson Silva really slowly stooping over to pick up a penny? <laughs> Doing deadlifts. Pick a, pick a penny up off the sidewalk. <laughs> Look, you can get all the way down. <laughs> Uh, ben, four fighters tested positive for various drugs after Bellator 127. Woo! Now that's a party. Are that's you when it becomes fucking a party. kidding me? 
Apparently, the company made the mistake of leaving whatever random Indian reservation in Kansas, where it normally does its shows, uh, and went out there to California, where I guess there is actual drug testing going on. UFC uh, veteran Rob Emerson popped positive for uppers. Keith Berry and Nick Mogadagam both tested positive for elevated levels of testosterone and marijuana. So they both pulled a two-bagger. That's a cocktail. Uh, and Fernando Gonzalez also tested positive for marijuana. Are you fucking kidding me? Uppers? How do we get invited to one of these Bellator parties, <laughs> man? Because I just want to kick back. I want to grab a cocktail, slide into the booth next to Daniel Strauss, and ask him what he's holding. <laughs> just let him hand you a like a like just a handful of pills, unidentified pills. And just tell you, uh, it's you cool, know, man. take them one at a time, man. Yeah, don't take them all at once. Uh, wind up in the chill-out tent. Uppers. Um, you sound like somebody's grandfather in here talking about... Pep pills, r- zoomers. Goofballs. Go-go juice. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm not as keyed in. Can they get to, a lid of grass? <laughs> I'm not as keyed into the drug market as the guy who hosts the speed bag, obviously. <laughs> all right, well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, on Saturday night from the Genacio Municipal Tancredo Neves in Uberlandia, wow, Brazil. Wow, is that really the name of the arena? According to Wikipedia, it is. Who named that? Clarence Byron Dalloway? I, I assume that Clarence Byron Dalloway, uh, the great industrialist, uh, named it after some local saint or something in Captain order to try and curry favor with the locals. Uh, yeah. Another of the USC fight nights going down this weekend, and this one... Uh, Mauricio Shogun Hua, Hua versus OSP, yeah, you know me, <laughs> Ovent St. Prue, yeah. uh, filling in for an injured Jimmy Manoa, uh, which then led the UFC to have to really quick recut those ads uh, to talk about why you should absolutely tune into this one on Fox Sports 1. This seems like kind of a rough spot for Shogun when you think about it, does it not? Yeah, well, first of all, let's just say, what percentage of viewers do you think would notice if they didn't say anything about Jimmy Manoa being out? And then you just tuned in that night and you were like, oh, uh, Shogun's fighting OSP. Okay. Yeah. That was, I, I knew that. Yeah. Sure. We'd all pretend on Twitter that we were totally up to date about it. Yeah. Like when you have signed up to rent a Toyota Corolla and instead they give you like a Nissan Altima and you're like, sure. Yeah. I guess whatever. I, I could have rented a Nissan Altima. It's the same to me. It does seem like a must win for Shogun Hua uh, from 2009 to 2012. He had that thing where he, he was kind of winning one and then losing one. But since then, uh, starting with his loss to Alexander Gustafsson at the end of 2012, uh, he's just one and three in the UFC. And that win is against James Tahuna. Um, so this does strike me as a must win for him. And uh, it's I feel uh, it's it's tugging at my heartstrings a little bit because he just seems unrepentant about his career and where things are at and how things are going. I just want to read you. These are, if you, if you Google Shogun Hua unrepentant news, if oh, you click okay. the news tab at the top, top of Google, here are the 
one, two, three, four, five random, uh, not random, but I guess headlines that come up. First one from Fox Sports, Shogun Hua has never contemplated retirement. The next one, Shogun Hua has UFC title aspirations, comma, brushes off retirement talk. The next one, Mauricio Hua believes he's wins away from title fight. The next one, Shogun Hua feels he's two fights away from title shot, wants quick KO. Uh, it just seems, and there's actually not in this list, but there's one where he talked, I don't know if he talked to Yahoo Sports, but that's where I saw the article from Elias Cepeda uh, talking about, it was kind of some sad quotes about how uh, his mother and his wife really want him to retire, yeah, but he was those, just yeah. kind of like, this is what I do, man. I'm, this is what I do for my job. I'm a fighter. This is this is my occupation. I just keep fighting. So, like, so you'd show- like to see more repentance. Well, I would just like to see uh, more, I guess, for my own uh, feelings, just some more uh, signs that Shogun Hua was being a little bit more realistic about what's going on here, because this is a dude who like had one of the greatest years a mixed martial arts fighter has ever had back mm-hmm. in 2005, and was and was uh, part of one of the greatest fights we've ever seen in mixed martial arts. That's right, and and you know part of a, a fairly legendary fight team at the time, at you know back when he was in Pride, and uh, f- frankly was a guy who during that Pride run. And before he came into the UFC was on the very, very short list of guys who could be the best fighter in the world. And now we see him kind of slipping into uh, something else and, and, you know, being a guy who might be on his last legs uh, just at 32 years of age. And and maybe it's being so young that makes Shogun feel like he could just continue to soldier on. But he can't really be that young, though, right? That's a lie. <laughs> you think he's probably like 36? Oh, he's he's like 43 at least. If you lose the OSP here. You're one and four dating back to the end of 2012 and your one win is against James Tahuna. Uh, you'd think that you would have to give some serious thought to calling it quits. Yeah. Well, for one thing, whenever somebody says, uh, you know, never considered retirement, like in one of those headlines that you say, I don't believe that. Like, I just don't believe it about anybody, any fighter, regardless of how close he is to the end. It's like somebody saying like death, huh? No, I've never thought about that. I've never thought about what that would be like or what might come after. Never. And then you're like, okay, well, you're a psycho or you're lying to me. Uh, so obviously, you know, he, he w- just from the number of people who have been asking him about retirement, he must know that that, that decision is looming, right? Like there's no way he could maintain like a, a complete ignorance about the possibilities uh, of what's going to happen if he, if he doesn't win some of these fights. But on the other hand, I mean, let's be honest, this shit got tougher when uh I, the best thing he has going for him is the fact that OSP is taking it on short notice. I think this is a tougher matchup for Shogun than Jimmy Manuel would have been. Uh at least Jimmy Manuel would have been a little bit more predictable of an opponent for him. He kind of and I'm sure he's been training for that style and now you got a guy coming in there who's probably going to look to uh take you down and and just kind of outmuscle you on the floor like that. That's a very different kind of fight. Uh, and it also, if you lose it, not only do you, like you pointed out about the state of his career, but then you lost to the dude who stepped up on short notice and came in there and beat you. And beat you in Uberlandia, man. Down there in Uberlandia. In front of the home crowd. Come on. Yeah, that's a funny show. Uberlandia with Fred Armiston and the lady from. No. That one band. Nope. Well, and yeah, from a physical standpoint. This could be a tough one for Shogun. Ovin St. Prue, you know, he's looked like a real prospect a lot of the times in his UFC fights. Like, he's still kind of putting together his his complete MMA game uh, and and uh, making the transition from being like a what a, uh, a guy who rode the bench for the Tennessee Volunteer football team from 2001 to 2004. 
Uh, but he's an enormous man. He's a big light heavyweight, six foot three. Uh, you got to assume he cuts a lot of weight to get down to 205. And Shogun is kind of like the exact opposite of that, especially if you've ever seen the guy in person. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of astounding how small he is. Physically unimposing. Yeah. And how he has managed to make a career for himself at 205, uh, when, uh, you'd think that 185 would be a better fit for him. Uh, and so it's kind of a fight where, I don't really know what to expect, man, because, uh, you know, OSP probably is going to come out and try to take him down and, uh, work his, his ground and pound, his ground game. Uh, and, and while we've seen Shogun Hua look like a somewhat lesser version of himself in his past several fights, uh, he's been fighting high level opponents. Those law, when I say he's one in three, that makes it sound pretty bad, but those losses are to Dan Henderson, Chael Sonnen, and Alexander Gustafson. The one time he got in there against a lesser light heavyweight, James Tahuna, he knocked him out in the first round. Uh, I don't know if, if that was cause for us to trumpet that quote unquote Shogun is back or anything like that. And I don't know if him beating OSP would do, do that either, but against a guy who hasn't yet fully realized his potential, maybe in mixed martial arts, uh, would it shock you to see Shogun who would knock him out and win this fight? No, it would not shock me. But then again, like you kind of alluded to there, that's one of the things that makes it a, a tough fight here for Shogun is because it seems like if he loses, then everybody starts to go, oh man, you lost four of your last five. Uh, dude stepped up on short notice, came down here in Uberlandia and, and, and ate your lunch. That's kind of a bad news, man. Maybe you should start to think about hanging it up. And then if he wins, it's kind of like, well, all right, you knocked out OSP, huh? Okay. So I guess, uh, I guess you can still knock out some of the strike force guys, uh, if they take the fight on short notice. I mean, it doesn't give you the kind of pop you'd hope for in a main event fight if you're Shogun Hua. Uh, so, I mean, that's why it seems like kind of a high risk, low reward fight for him. But then again, like you said, I mean, you go back and look at that last Dan Henderson fight. I mean, he could have been a punch or two away from winning that one. You know, it's not like he's getting absolutely blown away. I mean, Gustafson kind of outclassed him. Chael Sonnen, that one that seemed like Shogun just hardly showed up for that one. Uh, so I don't know, man. It's tough to know what to expect of him at this point. Uh, and I do think we're starting to do the mixed martial arts fan thing where we were like, oh man, are, you're going to keep doing this, aren't you? You're just going to keep on doing this until somebody makes you leave the party and you're going to make it difficult for us to remember the, the glory days in 2005. And Shogun Hu is kind of saying, yep, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And we all just have to live with it. Yeah. And like we've said it a million times on this show, it, it makes you feel uncomfortable and a little bit dirty to try to pull the plug on another guy's career because you know, far be it from us to tell another man what to do. Uh, I mean, that's why I would, I would think that I would feel a little bit better if it seemed like there was more recognition of that from Shogun because more repentance. Yeah. yeah I think that you, uh, you put it aptly when you, you said that like, you know, if he loses this, it's a disaster. And if he wins it, I'm not sure where it puts him in, in the light heavyweight division. Uh, certainly I don't think anyone is going to consider him up among the Alexander Gustafson, Daniel Cormier, uh, indefinitely suspended Anthony Johnson's of the world. No, if they put him in a match with Cormier right now, I would insist that the UFC matchmakers be brought up on charges. <laughs> and and if you're Mauricio Shogun Hua and you're a guy who, like we said, at one time was on the short list of the best fighters in the world, uh, I think you kind of got to realize that, man, that you're not, that like no matter what you do, you're probably not getting back into that elite class. And uh, then I guess you start to to be faced with difficult additional questions such as <laughs> why do this is it worth it etc cetera, etc cetera. uh and i don't know man maybe the answer to that is just be like well because it's my job yeah 
And because as long as I'm doing this, I don't have to think too hard about what comes next. I, I mean, he wouldn't be the first guy who's fallen prey to that brand of thinking. And certainly not the last. Um, all right. Well, anything else you want to talk about here with this fight, round number two, or or, or do you want to just fast forward straight into the to round number three? Let me ask you this one question. Say you could only watch one UFC fight night this this week. Think about, about the entire cards. Oh, God. Well, now I have to draw. I'd have to call up the cards. Uh, well, I mean, this is the one where on the undercard you're looking at Ian McCall and John Lineker. Uh, then it starts to get ugly. <laughs> uh, Warley Alves and Alain Jobuan. Uh Claudio Silva, Leon Edwards, uh, Juliana Lima, Nina Ansarov, a bunch of people without Wikipedia pages kind of rounding out the, the card after that on this one. Um, and, you know, not exactly star-studded down there in Australia at the Opera House or whatever. Which one do you choose? Say the, say the fight pass thing is not a concern because I know okay, that's so normally a barrier for you. So say they're, they're, say they're both, both free. <laughs> they're both free on the television. Um, I think I would still go with the OSP Shogun card because at least you got that meaningful flyweight fight as the co-main event. Over on the other card, you got Ross Pearson versus Al Iaquinta as your co-main event, and then Robert Whitaker versus Clint Hester and So Palele against Walt Harris. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead. Almost and pick- everybody there has Wikipedia pages. That's true. That's true. Uh, so maybe I just tune in a, an hour late, so I don't have to figure out which which one is Claudia Silva and which one is Leon Edwards. <laughs> I watch I watch the uh, Rockhold Bisping one just because of that fight or you know well uh, that plus uh, I like to watch Ross Pearson get down do his thing and Ally Ally Quinta that seems like a uh, interesting matchup um, so yeah mainly because I think the main event feels a little more meaningful to you know what's actually happening in that division uh, but then you know you sweeten the pot with Ross Pearson there okay that that just barely edges it out for me. Yeah, and I mean, I think if you want to just talk main event versus main event, Luke Rockhold against Michael Bisping is far and away the the more interesting one. Wouldn't it be crazy to get Ian McCall, John Lineker, Mauricio Shogun Hua, Ovin St. Preux, Luke Rockhold, Michael Bisping, and Ross Pearson and Ally Quinta all on the same card? Wait, you're saying that'd be that, too weird for me. That I don't if know what the UFC do. did say just one event this weekend instead of two, that we would actually get a better value as fans? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but what of the fans in Uberlandia? What would they do, though? <laughs> yeah, they'd have to just go on being fictional people because that place doesn't exist. There's no way. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, we mentioned at the top of the show, the co-main event podcast was faced with a bit of a dilemma regarding November 15th next Saturday in that there are going to be three fight cards that day, uh, more or less, you know, happening at the same time or, or at least one right after the other. UFC 180 featuring the makeshift main event of Mark Hunt against Fabricio Verdum, Bellator 131 featuring the makeshift main event of Stefan Bonner <laughs> versus Tito Ortiz and then World Series of Fighting 15 which has uh, uh, Yushin Okami against Dave Dave Branch and uh, Justin Gaethje against Melvin Gallard at the top of the card uh, 
And it dawned on us that because we were faced with that dilemma, so too might the discerning mixed martial arts fan be be faced with the dilemma of uh, of what to do next Saturday. What's the play, man? How does this go down? Yeah. And uh, you see which choice we made. Uh, we decided to go ahead and knock out the World Series of Fighting this week. Yeah. So now we're, we're showing people how the sausage is made. That's right. Uh, basically, we were like, okay, which one of these three cards do we not want to spend a round on next week? That's knowing right. that we're going to have Fallout from Bisping Rockhold and Fallout maybe from Shogun OSP. Uh, which one seems, frankly, the least important? We decided... Maybe Worlds of World Series of Fighting 15. And I gotta say, I think we're not gonna be the only ones arriving at that conclusion after making this calculation. Uh, cause I feel like, although athletically what's going on at World Series of Fighting might mean a little more than, uh, Tito Ortiz versus Stefan Bonner, which I think we can agree means nothing, uh, the, at least, it seems like that seems to be somehow more of an event, like more like uh, the thing, you you got to kind of tune in, don't you? Like, just yeah. to see well, what, what the train wreck looks like. Plus, you got Will Brooks, Michael Chandler as the co-main there. Oh, shit. Uh, well, yeah. Then the, then uh, it's not even close. The rematch between between those guys. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about World Series of Fighting 15 before, uh, before we run out of time on this episode. Uh, I wanted to pose this question to you. Uh, I think they might be doing Okami Branch as the main event here, uh, just because of of the weight yeah. involved, but I think the most interesting fight on the card is Gaethje against Melvin Gallard, because uh, Justin Gaethje is one of those guys who's been on a real tear. Just looks like a world beater. Now he gets a chance to flex his muscles against a an actual uh, UFC veteran in Melvin Gallard. Let me ask you this, which I think is kind of an interesting question: uh, Is World Series of Fighting better off having Justin Gaethje as champion or a guy like Melvin Gallard? Way better off having Gaethje. Yeah, right? Because yeah. he's the unknown commodity. Well, he's your guy. You yeah. know, like a, the reason, the, the value Melvin Guillard brings here is, all right, let's see this dude, this World Series of Fighting champ against a UFC guy. Let's just, like, you know, in a UFC kind of cast off, but not one that was absolutely drummed out of the UFC for poor performances necessarily. Uh, one that seemed like he probably could have hung around and, and, and stuck around with some of these lightweights. So let's see him up there. It's kind of a referendum on, is this World Series of Fighting champion? Does that does that mean anything? Uh, that's the that's what this fight is about. And if right. you're World Series of Fighting, I think you got to be hoping that Gates G comes out of it with the with the title because then people it's like okay, so we know that he's at least UFC caliber. How else like wh- what else could he do if right. given the chance? I think that's exactly right. I think if you have Melvin Gallard as your champion, then people are more apt to look at him and be like, okay, well he's a guy. You know, he didn't get drummed out of the UFC, but I think people would have a tendency to look at it that way. They'd be like, okay, well, here's a guy who didn't make it in the UFC and now he's your champion. Uh, Mm -hmm. Okay. I think you're better off if your World Series of Fighting to have Justin Gaethje as the more unknown commodity because it's impossible for us to tell how good he is, really. Might be the best in the world. Yeah. As as far as we know. Uh, And so, yeah, this Melvin Gillard fight is going to be a little bit of a barometer for him. Uh, But if your World Series of Fighting and Justin Gaethje wins, then you still have a situation where you can kind of prop him up as one of the best lightweights in the world, despite the fact that he doesn't have his own Wikipedia page, which we were both kind of surprised to learn as we sat down to record this. And it's kind of like we should make him one. Yeah, let's do that. Do we have the technology to make that or the know how or the interest? But but somebody who has those things and is hearing the sound of my voice right now should do that. With, with Gaethje, it's kind of a Michael Chandler, Eddie Alvarez type situation where for years those guys were over in Bellator uh, looking looking like 
the you know a list lightweights and uh so we we kind of granted him that uh that standing i guess i think the same thing is true of justin gaethje as long as he's over there in in world series of fighting looking like the man yeah well let's talk for a second though about the decision to to go head to head to head for world series of fighting going up against both bellator and the ufc and a ufc pay-per-view at that uh one that you know when world series of fighting was planning this was a cain velasquez pay-per-view over there in mexico city i mean is this just like the the scheduling gods uh just screwed with you here or is the world series of fighting thinking like all right hey we're gonna have to go up against these people at some point let's see let's see how we do yeah, I don't have the the actual like hour by hour run of play in front of me at the moment. Uh I feel like in the dark recesses of my Swiss cheese mind, didn't it seem like W uh SOF was going to move their thing ahead a little bit so they would try to get her get her done maybe before the other two things started because that seems to me like a Maybe the way to go. When they are on position the east, yourself as the aperitif. They're on the east coast. There, I, I think uh, Bellator is where in San Diego. Uh, yes, the UFC is right. in Mexico City. So you know, I guess you could let the time zones kind of work for you in that regard, uh, and you do have the advantage of uh, hey, you're on just regular TV. You know, nobody has to do anything weird to find you. So I don't know. I mean, I also wonder: Does World Series of Fighting? even make these sorts of calculations at that point, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I think it'll be interesting to see how the MMA fan plays it. Just like we were talking about at the beginning of the round, because, you know, UFC 180 is certainly, uh, the marquee event, I guess you would say, certainly the bright, the brightest and shiniest event out of these ones. Although it kind of, uh, it's hurting without Cain Velasquez on there. Uh, you know, you got Mark Hunt for Briso Verdum, Jake Ellenberger, Kelvin Gastelum, Dennis Bermudez versus Ricardo Lamas and Jessica I versus Leslie Smith. Uh, that, that seems like it's just kind of limping along in terms of a fight that they fight card that they would ask you to pay fifty four ninety five for. Yeah, if it was so, on, if it was on Fox Sports One, I'm jumping up and down for that fifty four ninety five. I don't know. So if you're a guy who's sitting at home, uh, maybe a little bit short on scratch, or your mom and dad won't let you order this pay per view, uh, do you just sit at home and watch World Series of Fighting fifteen and then cruise right into Bellator? You know, none the wiser, man. You're just you you got a bag of chips and a, a, a soda pop or a cocktail. Are are you just as happy? That's actually kind of a good point. I think maybe you are. I mean, you you find out later what happened in the UFC. You watch the gifs uh, if you can find them. Read some recaps. Uh, you know, who knows? But yeah, I, I mean, if you're if you're hankering for a night of somebody punching somebody, maybe that's enough to get it done for you. Maybe you you make up in quality with quantity here. Uh, just flipping right from World Series of Fighting to uh, to to Bellator, I don't know. I mean, I I guess I could see that if uh, like I, I mean I could see it now that the that event lost Cain Velasquez. But when when this was all originally conceived, you had to deal with going up against Cain Velasquez for Bicio Verdum, which I mean then I think the That's calculation a becomes a lot different. Yes, uh, I mean because you just look at it. If you just decide to cruise World Series of Fighting Bellator 131, you know, Jessica Aguilar is fighting. Then you got Yushin Okami, Dave Branch, Justin Gaethje, Melvin Gallard. Then you got poor Muhammad Lawal going up against his third or fourth opponent. Uh, who's he fighting now? Joe, Joe Vedepo? Yeah. After Tom. Joe Vedepo? Tom DeBlas pulled out with a. Pulled with out a again. Then yeah. you got Melvin Manoff, Joe Schilling, which is going to be fun, if nothing else. Uh, Brooks versus Chandler and Bonner versus Ortiz. Like. That's not a bad day of fighting if you don't feel like uh, 
shelling out 55 bucks to find out if Mark Hunt can make everyone's dreams come true. That's actually, now you're, you're kind of making a strong case now. That is not a bad I, bad night of fighting. Plus, then you can funnel that fifty four ninety five into snacks. Yeah, and then those could be some good snacks. Yeah, some hell yeah. Some good ass snacks if you're going to be willing to spend $55 on your... On your, and I'm assuming it's just for you because nobody's coming over to watch World Series of Fighting in Bellator. Yeah, nobody's your friend that much. <laughs> All right, Ben. Well, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, this week Sports Illustrated released its annual Twitter 100. Uh, it's a list that purports to show the 100 most essential Twitter feeds in sports. And uh, Am I on there? No, bro. You didn't make it. <sighs> Are you on there? Yes, I'm number one, okay. actually. Awesome. Congratulations. They're like, this guy tweets a couple of tweets once every couple of days. Like, if, if you're not on there, you're missing out. Yeah. Uh, I, per usual, Ben, when it can't, comes to the mainstream sports coverage of MMA, this list kind of gave the impression that the folks over at SI sort of half-assed it on the MMA inclusions. I believe there was only two MMA Twitter feeds to make the list. Uh, one was Helwani, and the other one was Ronda Rousey. I mean... Helwani is kind of a given. I got no quibble with that, if you want to put him on the list. Uh, but Ronda Rousey, man, like, as a Twitter follow, not terrible, but not if you were like, you need to put one fighter on this list. I'm not sure the first fighter you would think of is Ronda Rousey, unless you're totally into seeing Instagram pictures of people's crew. Uh, but it, it kind of felt like... <laughs> if you are into that, you're in love. You're in the right place. Uh, Sports Illustrated was just like... Which one of these no-name human cockfighters is kind of famous? This lady, okay, put her on there. But then, honestly, I'm just saying, I started thinking after looking at this list, I was trying to figure out which fighter should be on it. And I realized that for as much as MMA lives on Twitter and as much emphasis as the UFC has put on Twitter over the years, it's really hard to come up with somebody who's doing something on Twitter that you just can't live without. I'm just saying. Wow. Uh, I'm also just saying on that one, if it turned out that Sports Illustrated had just kind of half-assed it with regards to MMA, that would fit right in line with what I know about Sports Illustrated and their attitudes toward MMA. Uh, my Wait, actual- you're saying this is a former uh, worker bee there. That's right. Okay. My, my actual just saying stuff, though, Chad, I think you'll recall recently on this very podcast where uh, you chided the Nevada State Athletic Commission for failing to drug test the shit out of Vitor Belfort despite having told him that they would test him until the day he retired. You betcha I did. We we were kind of amazed to hear that in all that time when we had been expecting the Vitor Belfort-Chris Weidman fight to go down in Las Vegas, that the Nevada State Athletic Commission had done nothing with regards to testing Vitor Belfort. There was a great public outcry about it. Uh, and now, now that the fight has been moved to California due to a hand injury to Chris Weidman, now the Nevada State Athletic Commission tests him. Now, I'm just saying... This might have been a bad move for the NSAC because what they just told us is that they are very susceptible to public shaming and that we can kind of get them to do whatever we want if we all just yell at them about it. I'm just saying, is this the point where we start writing a bunch of articles about how we totally can't believe that the Nevada State Athletic Commission didn't even put out any sandwiches at their last uh, commission hearing just to see if at the next one they'll send somebody across the street to Quiznos just to get us all to shut up? Because I think we could kind of have fun with this. I'm just saying. It's disgusting that the Nevada State Athletic Commission continues to insist on doing their meetings while wearing shirts. <laughs> then you got Skip Evansino trying to put together a ham sandwich for taking off his polo or whatever. 
That's that, That'd be a sad and hilarious state of affairs, I'm just saying. They do seem really easy to shame, and I'm also still a little bit disappointed that the Fight Pass hasn't jumped on that Skip Avancino reality show that we tried to pitch several weeks ago. It's really looking forward to that. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week trying to figure out a way to talk about all this stuff that's going to happen. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get it. We'll get a line on it. We promise. Uh, but as for this week, we are done. We are through. We are out. Maybe what we need to do is refine our pitch. What if Skip Avancino becomes a mentor to Nick Diaz? Ooh, I like that. Now we got ourselves a show. How about clothes horsing with Skip Avancino? Just a show about how he picks out his outfits. Um, and also just to cover all our bases at the end of the show 